Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Dalhais and Dr. Daniel Kahneman. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Hi, welcome to episode 27. Eight. 27, 28. What yeah. are we up to? 28. 28. All right. Welcome to episode 28, everyone. It's hard to keep track sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so today we, we have a different episode for you. We mentioned it last time. We'll be talking a little bit about ethnoastronomy. And we are joined by Professor John Parkington, who is a professor in archaeology and hunter-gatherers. Yeah, so Professor Parkington has spent much of his very extensive career studying the hunter-gatherer people of South Africa, and as we said, he's an archaeologist. He also has a strong interest in anthropology. Yeah, and he kind of got into a bit of astronomy and the ethno-astronomy through this shared sky exhibit, which was commissioned by the, the Square Kilometre Array uh, when it was first getting proposed and the sites were getting selected. And the the idea with the Shared Sky Exhibit was to try and collect this cultural heritage of both sites, Australia and South Africa, and try and record the, the wisdom of the indigenous populations and their knowledge of the skies. And, you know, obviously the reason it was called Shared Skies, again, that same theme where we're all under one sky, and in particular, Australia and South Africa sharing the SKA and, and sharing the sky. Yeah. As Dan said, the Square Kilometre Array Telescope that's going to be built partly in Southern Africa, um, based in the Karoo region, and also part of it will be built in Western Australia, where I'm from. The The Indigenous people of these countries have a wealth of knowledge and history related to the night sky, which, as John mentioned in, in his talk he gave at the recent SAO 200th Anniversary Symposium, we, we mustn't ignore this knowledge. This is essential to incorporate into our present and into our future. Yeah, and obviously we don't represent the indigenous population. Right. And we, we're aware of that. And we acknowledge that, of course. Yeah, and I think that, you know, chatting to John, firstly hearing his talk, which was inspirational. I mean, the really cool thing was he was an archaeologist who, in studying his archaeology, and he explains it in the interview, but I'll mention it briefly here, is that he realized that there was so much more to the story than just what you could tell by the rocks and artifacts that he was finding and that there was this cultural heritage and it was it's just a a really nice story of how he got interested in this and got into his work so you and the sao and your team here in the public engagement sector are also interested in in these stories these indigenous stories yeah I, i think it's it's something very important i think that there is an incredible amount of knowledge and history and stories which have been collected over the years. And they were passed down from person to person through story, uh, this, this knowledge of the skies. And a lot of that is getting lost these days. And it's, it's very difficult to hold on to as people, as people are westernized and more disconnected from, from nature, both on land and in the sky. So a project I've been running recently at the observatory is the development of some animations uh, of these stories. So 
there, there are various stories which have been collected over the years. Some of the most notable ones were the, the Bleak and Lloyd collection, which were collected in the, the late 1800s by a couple here in, in Cape Town by interviewing some of the indigenous peoples and talking to them about their knowledge of the scars, the naming stars, and and that was kind of how I got interested in it. Because, you know, in, in our new visitor center, uh, we are planning to install a, an installation of the night sky, but with indigenous constellations rather than Western ones. Oh, fantastic. That'll um, be fascinating. Yeah, so I, I, I was paging through the digital versions of the Bleak and Lloyd collection and trying to find out where these constellations, which have been described before, mm-hmm. but where they where they were in the sky. So I, I rolled back heavens above to the 23rd of January, 1874, when they were taking these notes and worked out sort of where in the sky they were looking and, and what they were looking at. For example, one of the really cool ones is Taurus, which is obviously not Taurus, but it's the Irland. Which ah, is a, a big antelope yeah, here, right. which makes complete sense. Yeah, of course it does. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like until you actually make that click connection, mm. you're like, well, oh yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, that was very cool. So that that was kind of how I got interested in it, and with the Bleak and Lloyd collection, and then we we started this project with a, a a company called African Tongue and Dr. Kerry Jones, who is a linguist and speaks many indigenous languages here, and has done her, her PhD on these on those topics. She's also very interested in in these stories, and so we started picking out some stories of the night sky, uh, which had been collected over the years, and we decided to make animations of them. So we've got artists who community artists from those communities and we've collected them together and we've made a series of animations. We've got three animations so far, and then we we try to spread those stories as as far as we can. So obviously not just in English, um, but we've also uh, translated them into uh, Kosa, Wisikosa, and Afrikaans, and then Koiko Gowab. Um, and Koiko Gowab is, is one of the indigenous languages here in South Africa from the, the indigenous Khoisan. And there are still about uh, 200,000 speakers. So, you know, we wanted to record these stories and then share them with those communities in their language so mm-hmm. that they can feel some ownership over it. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, we keep these, keep these stories going. So yeah, there was a, it was a very interesting uh, project and we've released the first of the animations in, in all four languages. We released that on at the, the 200 year anniversary and it's on YouTube. So we'll share it on the, yeah. on this episode's blog and you can take a look and see what you think. Well, shall we play one of them right now? Yeah. This one is uh, called Moon's Message and well, We'll let yeah, you, we'll let runs you hear for it. about three minutes, so yeah. enjoy. enjoy. Moon's message. In the beginning, Moon lived on Earth with all the other beings. She was wise and respected by all. One day, she had an important message for man. But who could be her messenger? Chameleon was nearby so she asked him to deliver the message. As I wither and renew, so will you too. So Chameleon set off to deliver this important message. As I wither and renew, so will you too. But Chameleon was slow, and Hare overheard him talking in the felt. What are you doing? I am delivering an important message from moon to man. You're too slow. I will do it. 
And before Chameleon could say anything further, he ran off with Moon's message. As I were wondering you, so were you too. Hare arrived where man lived and shouted, I have a very important message from Moon. Well, what is the message? I will wither and renew, but not you. <gasps> Giving no time for frightened man to reply, Hare dashed off back the way he came. What a fast and clever message I am. He hurried back to Moon. Moon, Moon, I delivered your important message. And what was the message? I will wither and renew, but not you. What? You careless creature! You have delivered the wrong message! Exclaimed Moon as she swung at Hare with her walking stick. Moon's stick ah. struck Hare's top lip and it split open. To this day, Hare has a split upper lip to remind him to slow down and watch his words. And Moon now lives in the sky, shining brightly, providing a constant reminder of her message to all. As I wither and renew, so will you too. So is And there's more of these coming out soon. Yeah, so we've got a couple more already. And then we will obviously try and share these as far as possible. So the next part of the project is actually translating them into even more languages. How exciting. So in South Africa, we've got 11 official languages already. Wow. And particularly in the, the Khoisan community, there are many, many more. So the Khoisan community are the, you know, it's it's a kind of, it's a catch-all term for the indigenous peoples of, of Southern Africa. They obviously represent many, many smaller populations with many, many different languages. So uh, Khoisan is a, is a term for, for all of those indigenous populations, but there are many different uh, smaller populations comprising. And obviously with many languages, and some of them, like I mentioned, Koiko Gowab uh, has about 200,000 speakers still, but others have two Mm. speakers mm -hmm. so these languages are nearly extinct mm. and some of them are extinct and if we can translate these stories into those languages too uh, it would be it would be a wonderful way to tr try and keep those mm -hmm. those languages going firstly but keep the stories going and and try and share yeah, and I guess we also heard from Siamisu Makwela in uh, one of the, her mini-episodes during our interseason break. That episode was called, But How Does Astronomy Benefit Humanity? And Siamisu was telling us a little bit about the stories that she's heard from her community growing up about the night sky. So if you're interested, check that out. Yeah, we should probably hear from John. Great, let's hear from John. I'm joined by Professor John Parkington. John, can you just introduce yourself and your role? 
I'm retired professor, emeritus professor of archaeology at UCT, and I'm a senior research scholar in the Department of Archaeology in the Science Faculty at UCT. Great. Thank you, John, for joining us on the Cosmic Savannah. We really appreciate your time. And you've just uh, given a talk here at the SAO 200 Virtual Symposium about ethnoastronomy and your book about the Karoo Scar. And for, for me, it was incredibly interesting just to hear the, the stories you've, you've recorded over the years, trying to communicate these to, to people. Where to start? It's something I've been interested in for a very long time and something I've been working on in my role at the observatory. We just watched the, the, the animation Moon's Message, which was part of the, the unveiling of the National Heritage Site yesterday. And you, in your talk, you mentioned the story, the story of the moon sending a message about continual renewal and the the hair getting the message and, and making a mistake. So, yeah, I mean, maybe we can just start there. In, in your knowledge, I mean, where, where did the story come from and how did it, how did it come about and, and how has it sort of changed over the years? Well, perhaps I'll start by talking about the archaeological record because the archaeological record is a material record. So when we excavate or record things that have survived from the past, it's very material. get a lot of artifacts. We obviously get rock paintings and engravings, but we don't get stories. There are stories, uh, and there are stories behind the artifacts and behind the engravings and behind the paintings and so on. But stories are something, sound, if you like, in general, is something that is not there in the, in the archaeological record. And yet people didn't paint on the walls of caves or engrave boulders in the Karoo without a lot of singing and dancing. So we know as archaeologists that we're getting a very partial record of what was happening in the past. And so it's very important wherever we can to try and bring in these other elements, to try and find the stories, find the singing, find the dancing, and remember that those were parallel manifestations with somebody making a painting on the wall of a cave or chipping stone by the side of, of, a, of a stream. My, my expertise really is in those material things. And so we have to make alliances with folklorists and anthropologists and other people to try and enrich our record with those other records, those records of sound uh, and movement and dance. It's very clear when you actually see the paintings that people are dancing in the painting or people are clapping in the paintings. You can't do that without sound. You, know, you, can't, you can't have someone clapping without the clapping. And yet that's what we've got in the archaeological record. We haven't got the clapping and the singing and the, and the movement. And how do, how do we go about collecting these stories then? You, you mentioned in your talk the, the Bleak and Lloyd collection, uh, and they interviewed a, a lot of in, indigenous peoples and, and tried to capture these stories very early on. And obviously over the years, the, the number of indigenous speakers of some of these languages has dropped drastically, and uh, some of the, the languages are even extinct. I mean, are we trawling through old records? Or are there still speakers out there today who know these stories and we can, we can record them? Well, uh, yeah, that, that's the exciting thing, of course. It's easy to think as an archaeologist with this kind of material bias uh, that it's all gone. But if you talk to folklorists, it's not gone. It's, it's still there. These stories are passed down and are still there. And so at the tail end of the archaeological record, if you like, of the last few hundred years, you might be able to put back in 
the stories and the dances and the and the and the non-material things that that went with the material record that we excavate. As you go further back in time, it's going to become more and more dangerous to assume that those things were there and were not changing. It, it would be a bit unrealistic to think that that stories can survive and dances and songs can survive unchanged for tens of thousands of years. They might, they might survive relatively unchanged for hundreds and perhaps even thousands of years. But it's very hard to investigate that because we don't have we don't have a fossil record of singing. We don't have a fossil record of storytelling. So it's really difficult. And, and, and what we can manage to do with the archaeology of the last few hundred years is much more difficult to do as you go further back in time. And the paintings and the engravings are a very valuable bridge between the material record of the stone artifacts and the food waste and the fireplaces that we can dig up and we can make a lot of those. They're, they're a kind of bridge between those things and the non-material aspects of people's lives, which must have been there, but we can't dig them up. And how do these stories relate to astronomy? When we met with Bernie Fanaroff, he wanted us to put together an exhibition for the South African side of a South African-Australian joint exhibition to celebrate the awarding of the SKA work to both South Africa and Australia, we we realized that the, the telescopes were going to go up in an area where uh, from which we had a lot of 19th century stories. And we knew, of course, already that many of these stories actually did relate to the sky. You see, those uh, Tam-speaking San hunter-gatherers of the Karoo spent just as much t- of their time looking up at the dark sky as they did looking up at the bright daylight sky. You know, it, it, they spent an awful lot of time lying there looking at the sky. They knew it backwards. They they knew its patterning. They knew its variability. They knew its relationship to seasonal changes, to weather, and so on. So it was very obvious to us that among the stories, there are lots of stories that we had and some that we could still collect, but many of those stories told us about the um, speakers as astronomers, as people who had the same kind of interest that we have in explaining what those mysterious objects and their movements up in the sky are. And we, we also realized pretty quickly that the distinction between the land and the sky was much more mutable, if you like, much more ephemeral in, in um, thinking. The um, ontology is what's called a relational ontology. It's very mutable. It's, they're not always trying to sort things out. Is it A or B? Maybe it's A and B. Many of the divisions, nature, culture, man, people, animals, are not as firm in uh, um, way of thinking uh, as they are in ours. And so land sky is another example probably of a a much more ephemeral. So, so events that start happening on land end up trailing off into the sky and are reflected in the constellations that, that are interpreted by sand people in the sky. When the Australian ethnographers and historians were doing their side of the exhibit, it was pretty clear that the same was happening there, that Australian Aborigines are also looking up at the sky. And it was a shared sky. That's why the, the whole project was called Shared Sky. It was originally, interestingly, called Shared Skies. 
But very soon we realized, no, this is shared sky. They share the sky. And they not only share the sky, but they share an interest in it. And in many ways, they share a style of interpretation about it. In both cases, it's what David Morris called an intimate cosmology. It's very intimate. It's almost within reach. It's just beyond reach. So people have to throw things for them to end up in the sky. They can't put them there. They have to throw them. So there's a lot of throwing of things into the sky. And there's a lot of movement of animals or groups of animals. So a constellation is thought of as a, 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 a small herd of female kudu, for instance. Well, obviously in Australia, that would be emu or, or some other animal from their universe that was, that was reflected in the sky. So it's very intimate. Things were, things were moving back and forth between sky and land. And it was not all about the almost unmeasurable. It was about the very measurable, <laughs> the very understandable, the almost tangible. Yeah, it's a, it's a very intimate, as you say, like a very intimate relationship with the sky, something which these days we don't have at all almost. I think we, yeah. with lights and houses and things, yeah. we, we have a very loose relationship with the sky. Yeah. I mean, even as astronomers, we, we're quite removed looking yeah. through computers and things. And you see, what goes with intimacy is responsibility. If you believe that these are massive objects that are so far away you can hardly imagine it, moving at speeds that you can hardly imagine, then there's nothing you can do about that, right? Yeah. And people knew there were things you could do about it or believed that there were things you had to do about it. So that and people had a responsibility to that landscape, an involvement with the landscape's continuing functioning that we, I think, unfortunately have lost. And it, it can lead to an irresponsibility and, and lead to a lack of care about that landscape. And people had, they felt an enormous responsibility to the other organisms and even the inorganic parts of that landscape to which they often ascribed agency. You know, water, wind, cloud. These were agents that could do things and you had to be responsible in relation. So the whole thing is a relationship between people and their environmental context of responsibility, not of helplessness. I could easily imagine that if you believe in, in these very large objects moving at amazing speeds, you say, well, not my problem. What yeah. can I do? Yeah. No, for sure. And I mean, it, it, it just speaks to exactly what you were saying too, is that the, there wasn't this disconnect between the land and the sky, which we have now, which is a very clear disconnect. And the, the land we, ha we are having issues and, you know, climate change and we do feel some responsibility, although we are somewhat disconnected, but the sky is almost completely foreign. And as you say, there's nothing we can do about it. And in these cultures, there was no distinction between land and sky. So you, you can have that same sort of relationship with the sky. It's deep, deep relationship, which, which we don't currently have. Yes, the horizon was just a kind of accidental boundary between, yeah. between the two arenas, if you like. And many of the things that happened in the one also happened in the other or originated in the other. You know, the yeah. stories are wonderful like that. And then, and once we have these stories, then, I mean, it becomes quite important to share them, right? Uh, firstly, we want to record them before they're, they're lost any further. As the languages are lost and wane, 
then we lose a lot of these stories. So obviously recording them is important in itself. But I think there's probably more to it than that. And, um, you know, that's, that's something which at the observatory, uh, we feel quite strongly about. And myself, we've been working on this animation and we've created the animation in four different languages in English, Afrikaans, Kosa and Koikokoab, uh, which is, as you know, spoken by about 200,000 people still. And I think that this, this same disconnect, between land and sky is happening in in these cultures too. I mean, as everyone has been westernized over the, the past century or more, these cultures have lost that too. So I think that we have an opportunity here to try and share these stories with the people who they originally belonged to and try and keep them going and keep this relationship. Yeah. No, it, it, it certainly, I was going to use the word ironic, but it's much more serious than ironic that many descendant communities have have lost the stories. I, Jose and I have a slight disagreement about this. I, I have tended to think of the um, thinking as residual now. In other words, it was once powerful everywhere and, and full, but it's now reduced by colonialism and apartheid to traces. He, th- he believes that there's much more of it than that, and it's wrong to call it residual. More of it is there and surviving. But either way, there are certainly communities who who may not claim to be descendant communities, but would probably have a perfect right to if they wanted to, for whom these stories and this notion of relatedness to the landscape has gone. Unfortunately, what what happened to those um, people in the crew is they 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 very rapidly well there was a lot of genocidal killing of um, people those who survived became farm laborers and domestic servants or small town dwellers in the tiny villages that were beginning to pop up around the Karoo and in all kinds of ways their their way of thinking about the world had to change some things were lost very quickly probably language went pretty quickly and gradually people became Afrikaans speaking they became uh, Christian the only things that survived or often the only things that survived were were real basic survival issues like which of the plants can you eat and what will make your tummy better if you've got a bad stomach or what can a woman do if she's giving birth and she's got pains and and she's a long way from a chemist or a pharmacist what can she do so Obviously, certain cultural strands are going to survive, but many of them disappear quite quickly. Some of them disappear more slowly. Those Blake and Lloyd records that we have from the 1860s, they were already on the way out. That was a, an almost unique opportunity to collect that kind of information. When Dorothea Blake, Wilhelm Blake's daughter, went back about 50 years later to try and find the informants or the children and descendants of of the informants of her father and her aunt she could hardly find it the process of transformation was picking up uh, a pace so there's not a lot left and in many ways being being descendant community now means reviving rather than remembering and and that's that's very sad because because it's really valuable Information. It's a wonderful way of thinking about the world. I mean, I've been studying hunter-gatherers my whole archaeological life, and I, I have realized how sensible hunter-gatherers were. Yeah. You know, they, they were responsible. 
they they thought of themselves as stewards, as looking after things, passing them on to the next generation, not owners. And they have relationships with one another and with the landscape and with the resources. They recognize the agency of other animals. It's a really valuable way of thinking about the world that you have to live in and not damaging it. It's a difficult question, but as to males of European descent talking about this, what is our role? How can we, I mean, how do we relate to this? I mean, obviously, I have an interest. You have a, you have a deep interest and a lot of experience in this. But what are your thoughts on that? I've been running a project in Clan William for many years, the Living Landscape Project. And I think our job is to recognize these traces of the past and to communicate it and to celebrate it. Obviously, it's, it, it's up to people to decide whether they are descendant communities and what their relationship is with the past or particular groups of people in the past. That's obviously a, a decision that people have to make for themselves. But if you can put the potential decisions like that on the table and then become, if you like, a source of information as to how one could think about the past and uh, people from the past and what happened in the past and how the past became the present the terrible things that turned the past into the present and so on. I, I think of it as just putting this stuff on the table. We've excavated in that area. We know quite a lot about the pasts of people in the Cedarburg or in the Western Cape. It's our job to talk to the potential descendants of those people about it, rather, or as well as the journal editors through whom we publish. So for the first half of my career... I spent my time doing what an academic has to do. You know, I went out there and collected information and then I wrote papers on it. And the university expected me to do that and that was fine. But from the 1990s onwards, it was very clear that I needed to be talking to other people as well. I needed to be communicating what I thought we had found out to other people who might have a different kind of interest in it from a journal editor, a personal interest in it. And it was really interesting in Clem William to see young men and young women who I thought could be descendants of the people who made the paintings and made the stone artifacts and so on, to see them pick up that notion and, and do what they wanted with it, possibly even make a living out of knowing about it. Certainly, I imagine, being able to rethink their notion of self and who they were, and certainly look back on these appalling caricatures of people in the past with a new set of eyes and realize that the, the, the people to whom they may want to claim some relatedness were high achievers. Their knowledge of plant edibility, medicinal value of plants, their knowledge of how to live uh, sensibly and sustainably in a landscape was enormously higher than the colonists. Their ability to paint to develop poisons, to do chemistry basically, to make poisons and mastics and paints out of various components was, was incredible, admirable. Now, I don't know, I, I, and none of us can really kind of determine how those notions or thoughts will be taken up by people, but one, one just hopes that it will have some positive value on people's thinking about themselves and their past and their future. Thank you, John. Thank you very much for speaking to us today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure.
Wow, that was really cool. That was very, very different, a hugely different perspective and really interesting. I really loved hearing about how the Indigenous Australian people had stories that were kind of in parallel to the Indigenous South African people. And John spoke more about this during his presentation at the symposium, how there's this story of from Australia about emu eggs in the sky and a, a story from South Africa, of course, about ostrich eggs. Yeah. In the sky. It's, I mean, it's fascinating. Like yeah. you, It makes you wonder about uh, all sorts of things, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. the history of the world. But yeah, it's, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. You yeah. probably heard it in my voice. Yeah. I, I just thought it was it was fascinating the just the whole concept of it and some of the things he some of the concepts he he brought up i loved the fact that the earth and sky weren't separate mm, um that yeah. the, the sky was not this distant thing which it is yeah. now i mean for yeah. us you know we we talk about astronomy all the time mm-hmm. but it is distant you yeah. know we don't have any control over it we understand that we don't have any control mm-hmm. over it but in doing so, it's distance from. Yeah, us. exactly. Like like John said, it's this concept of shared sky of responsibility and preservation. Just kind of like what Susan and Chu were saying in the last episode, like what Vanessa was saying in episode twenty six. It's I liked this concept of the intimate cosmology as opposed to the the infinite cosmology that the SKA will study. Yeah, and it made me want that connection, mm-hmm. seek that connection. Yeah, I mean, we're so removed from it, particularly yeah. when we live in cities and we can't even see yeah. the night sky at all. Yeah. It makes you wonder how different the experience would have been to to live like these people and to see these night skies. Yeah, and just that, that cultural connection. You know, we, we, we have the striving still to feel at one with nature. Uh, I mean, most people do. You, you want to go camping and you want to, mm-hmm. you, you want to really get in touch with mm-hmm. nature, but to see the stars as, as something that is the same. It's something that you can really get in mm-hmm. touch with. Yeah. You can, you can have an intimate relationship with these stars, even though yeah. they're very, very far yeah, away. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I also liked how John was saying that this is a way to communicate and celebrate the traces of the past. And, and you were sort of asking down what, what your role, what our role is in this, because of course we fully acknowledge that we are both white Euro-descended persons, so that our point of view and our, our representation of all of this is probably going to be Eurocentric. And you were asking what is the role that people like us will play in telling these stories? Do we have a right to tell these stories? Do we have a right to share it? Like, of course, we must be including other people in this conversation. So what did you think about John's response to that question? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it is a, a difficult question. And I think that he's, he's right in many ways that these stories are, are being lost and being able to, to record them and, and offer them to populations who, who may feel some connection to them so that they can then choose whether this is something that they want to incorporate in their culture. But again, like, you don't want to do it in such a way that like this, I've collected the story and here it is for you. Yeah. It's, and that's kind of why I asked the question is because it's, it is really tricky. I mean, we, if, for example, I mean, a, a tangible example is we've made these animations, right? And we've worked with indigenous people to make the animations mm-hmm. and we can translate them into, to indigenous mm-hmm. languages. But is that enough? And is that actually achieving the goal of empowering people to, 
feel some ownership over these stories and and this culture and mm. this wisdom. I mean, I guess we we have to constant we should constantly be worrying that we're. I mean, I guess the expression is white saviorism. We don't want to. Yeah, exactly. This is sort of we want to participate and celebrate, but not you know take over. Yeah, I mean, it's you know you can take the approach of oh, it's interesting, and that's a, that's a good enough reason. I'm mm. not going to try and do anything with it. I'm just interested. Mm. But I think that there's so much more, and I think that trying to celebrate indigenous knowledge and incorporate mm. it into I mean, for, for me, the, the one reason I really, really am interested in it and, and do like to incorporate it as much as possible is because it reaches people. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what John was getting at. If, if you can reach people on something that they feel close to, then the experience and the interaction is so much more mm-hmm. rich. And relevant to Yeah, lives. I mean, rather than sort of walking into a school or, or an open night mm-hmm. or something and, and just saying, well, here's Orion. And mm-hmm. like, I mean, who knows what Orion, yeah. Orion isn't mm-hmm. a, it's an African constellation. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that even taking small steps in, in those directions help. You know, I think that it, it, it does allow people to, to feel a little bit closer to the skies and mm-hmm. feel that they have some, some connection with it. Yeah. I guess it's this ontology that, John was talking about, which uh, we we did have to look that up. What that meant? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's really moving away from our area of expertise. But so ontology is a branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being, which is much more philosophical than the conversations we usually have. But it makes sense, right? The sky is part of our sense of being. Yeah, and I mean that that's it, right? Like it's this. It's so much more. And I mean, we, we talk about it often that the sky is like it's a, there's a cultural connection to it and it's makes you feel humble and all that. But there's so much more. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and historically in the past, there was even more mm-hmm. and we've lost a lot of yeah. that and trying to rediscover some of it. And particularly in your own culture, mm-hmm. it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, Again, we can only bring our own perspectives to this conversation at this time, but we want to hear your perspectives. We'd love to hear from listeners how you feel about all of these topics, what you'd like to hear more about. So please do reach out to us on social media or via the contact page of our website. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, that was a very, very different episode, but I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope that you did too. I did. You did. (laughs) (laughs) I was speaking to the listeners, but also you. Great. Okay. Well, that's it for today. As always, thank you very much for listening and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. You can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com, where we'll have the transcript, links and other stuff related to today's episode, including the animation. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Special thanks today to Emeritus Professor John Parkington for speaking with us. Thanks to Sumari Hatting for social media and transcription assistance and Andy Firth for show notes preparation. Also to Mark Allnut for music production, Janis Brink and Mihao Warcek for photography, Lana Sirai for graphic design. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation, the South African Astronomical Observatory and the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department to help keep the podcast running. As always, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to help us out, please rate and review us and recommend us to a friend. We'll speak to you next time on the Cosmic Savannah.
Hello. <laughs> Hello and welcome. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> what was wrong with that? One? I was trying to beat you to it. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, Hello and welcome to episode 28. Hi. Um, yeah, so should we get right into it? I don't know. I'm all over the place. Okay, all right. Let's just start that again.